This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 125. And the quote of the day is, if you're not improving, you're falling behind. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's up, 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 what's going on? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I'm in a great mood. I hope everybody had a fantastic weekend. I did myself. My best friend got married, so we had a, a fun time partying and celebrating with him. I hope you're having a fantastic Monday so far, and thanks so much for checking out session one, two, five. And if this is the first time listening to the podcast, welcome to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Thank you for, for checking it out and let me know how you found out about it. Shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com or you can find Drummer's Resource on all the, the fancy social channels. So introduce yourself, say what's up. I love hearing from everyone. And session 125 is brought to you by DW Drums. And you guys know that I've been playing DW for years, not only because they make great drums, but because they support and foster drumming initiatives all over the world, much like this podcast, to keep this podcast free for all the listeners. Be sure to thank them, and you can check them out at dwdrums.com. This session is also sponsored by Evans Level 360s, and drummers are talking about the Level 360 technological revolution in drum heads that allows for fast, precise tuning and perfect fit every time. Level 360 ensures balanced contact with the bearing edge every time for incredible tuning rates. Be sure to check them out at evansdrumheads.com. All right, guys, let's get real. If you want to work, you got to know how to groove. And Damani Rhodes play-alongs help you do just that. These drumless tracks help you improve your time, feel, groove, musicality, and more. To get your own play-along track 100% free, go to drummersresource.com forward slash playalong. Now, the interview that I have today, I'm excited about. I have Jeremy Hummel, who is the original and founding drummer for Breaking Benjamin. He's also a contributing writer for Modern Drummer Magazine. He's an educator. He's before, performed, excuse me, at PASIC and is just a force in, in the drumming community and serves up a ton of value with everything that he does. So I'm super pumped to get him on the show. And he's also a listener of the podcast, which makes makes him have a special place in my heart. And this interview is great we talk about you know him growing the the band breaking benjamin they talk about we talk about all of his past experiences and we talk about a lot of vanilla ice too and you'll hear all about that so let's get into this interview with mr jeremy hummel jeremy what's going on my man thanks so much for doing this nick thank you for having me i um i think you're doing a really fantastic thing with the drummers resource podcast so I feel it an honor to be here. Well, thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. I read your articles, and I think you're a great contributor to the to the drumming community as well. And you have a long list of accomplishments, and we're going to get into all of that stuff. But first off, it's it's a pleasure to have you, so I want to thank you for that. And I always like to get the backstory on on the guests. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who know who you are, but I'm sure there's some people who don't know who you are as well. So let's talk a little bit about, about who you are and what you've done and, and what you're working on now. Sure. Okay. Well, most people probably know me as being the original drummer with the band Breaking Benjamin. And I was with that group on the first two records and did extensive touring. And uh, the second record, We Are Not Alone, went platinum. And, um, you know, I've also become really heavily into the education field. So I did a clinic at PASIC in Indianapolis in 2010. Um, I'm very 
teaching heavily privately. Um, I do clinics and workshops and master classes, write articles for Modern Drummer magazine. So, and then I also perform still to, to this day, I still perform. So I'm the band leader of an eight piece band with horns called Into the Spin. And we do a lot of corporate functions and weddings and all that type of stuff. So with the two, two businesses of teaching and running the band, um, plus two kids, I, I keep pretty busy. Awesome. So now, I mean, let's, I, I want to get into the Breaking Benjamin stuff because that, that band was huge and, and you were a founding member. So you can talk about how you grew that band from, from humble beginnings to what it became. But let's, let's go back a little bit before that, when you, before you were the rock star, let's talk about when you were, you were coming up and what sort of things got you into playing and how you really got the drumming bug. Sure. Well, when I was three years old, um, I went to a birthday party for my cousin. And when I was at this birthday party, he got a toy drum that everybody, you know, when you go to birthday parties and when you're kids, you know, everybody gets the gifts and you pass them around and you say, oh, this is cool. This is great. Well, he got a toy drum and the drum ended up in my hands and he never got that drum back. That's, <laughs> that's when I was three years old. And then. And how old were you? I, I was three. Nice. Yeah. And then um, when I was five years old, my parents decided to buy me my first drum set. My dad's a musician. He's a guitar player. So he was playing in bands himself. And he kind of saw, hey, you know, he really has an interest in music. So he got me my first drum set at age five. And, you know, there's old pictures of me with my Peter Chris makeup on and, you know, just rocking on the drum set. And then I got my second kit at age nine. And that's when I began performing in clubs when I was nine years old. Really? Yeah. See, like what happened was, is like I said, my dad was a musician, so he had a gigging band. And my cousin and I had a two-piece band called Lightning. <laughs> great, great, great name for a young band. So we were, it was the two of us, and I was on drums and lead vocals. And so we used to go out and open up for his band a lot at different clubs. And then, you know, some other bands saw us. And, you know, of course, if you have the novelty of having two young kids, you know, it's kind of cool to have that band open for you. So then some other bands had us open for them as well. And um, so then that just kind of continued. And I just, I just played all the time. I mean, it was one of those things of where, like, I'm sure a lot of drummers listening and probably yourself too, that practicing for me was never a chore. It was like I got home from school. That's what I did. I just went down and I played along to records. Um, I would do that all the time. And like one of my, my big influences in addition to like, you know, kind of heavier rock stuff at the time was I'm a huge, huge fan of the Allman Brothers band. And I used to really be in love and still am with the album Live at Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. And I would sit there in my drum set and I would try to play both, both drum parts from J-Mo and Butch Trucks at the same exact time. So that really helped me work on my independence and my coordination because I was trying to, you know, cover both parts. And um, so then, you know, I went through my teenage years and everything, and I was in a couple of other bands, some original bands, some cover bands. And then finally, in 1998, I got my first full-time gig where I was just doing only music. I did not have to work another job. I was playing in a blues band, and we did original music. We did Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, that, that type of thing. And I was playing four or five nights a week. I was actually making pretty good money for for the time. And it was around 
I'm thinking it was probably around 99-ish, something like that, where where Ben Burnley, the lead singer from Breaking Benjamin, had come back from Los Angeles. He was there for a little bit, and he came to me and said, hey, I've got some songs, and I really want you to play with me. And so we started writing, and um, it was in 2000, I believe, that I decided to leave the blues band and play with Breaking Benjamin the whole the full time, hmm. um, which at the time people kind of thought I was crazy because, you know, I was making pretty good money doing what I was doing. But, you know, when you love something and you're passionate about something, um, I think if you believe in something, it, it, it's like if you build it, they will come. And that was the mentality that we had. And so we kind of felt that we were very into what we were doing and we just knew it was a matter of time until other people would be too. So that I decided to follow that path then. Nice. Nice. So let me tell you about what I was doing when I was nine years old. You were gigging in clubs and (laughs) I, I I was, uh, I was a huge Bobby Brown fan. Dude. Awesome, man. I don't be cruel. Yeah. 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 I actually, I know that, that you're, uh, you're into some hip hop stuff and I want to talk about that too. Um, but so my friend and I, my friend Joey Foster and I, uh, we would dance to Bobby Brown and my, and my, my dad owns, a, my parents own a restaurant they have since like the seventies. And I was like, I thought it would be a good idea to on Friday and Saturday nights, my buddy and I could go out in front of the restaurant and play Bobby Brown and dance to it to greet the customers as they come nice. in. That's a great idea. <laughs> my dad was not on the same page. Okay. <laughs> He's like, that's a horrible idea and get out of here. So I'm a little bit jealous that, uh, that you were, you were gigging and I was trying to do some Bobby Brown dance. Anyway, that's a side note, but I just figured I was thinking, I'm like nine years old. What was I doing? Probably the Bobby Brown. Thing. <laughs> well, you know, uh, truth be told, Bobby Brown's don't be cruel record was the first, was the first CD that I ever owned. Really? Like when, you know, when CDs became popular, yeah. I remember the first, like that was the first CD that I actually owned. And so I was, yeah, man, I was all into that, that same kind of stuff as well. Did so Zorro my, play on that record or did he just do the tour? You know, cause he I, was like, he was in the videos and everything. Yeah, he, he was in the videos. I'm not sure. I mean, it's been a long time since I kind of read those credits or anything, but I, I can't say for sure. If he yeah, was, I don't on, know. I feel I like he was though. Stuff. Anyway. Um, so, so in so, how old were you in ninety nine? Not oh boy, ninety nine. I mean, you're making me do math. You yet. didn't know it was going to be a math class, did you? Uh, let's see, ninety nine. Let's see, eighteen. I was twenty five. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, so you're twenty five, and you and you start, or you join. You're like, all right, I'm going to quit the blues band. I'm going to go full time into into Breaking Benjamin. So what was the, what was the, I, I always like to hear the path to success of like how you guys got there and what was the, what was the game plan? Because there's a ton of people who listen to this podcast who are in bands and they want to say, or they want to try to figure out how to do the same thing. And I've given my take on how I, you know, how I did it with, with my band. So I, I would love to hear how you guys did it. Well, the, the first thing that we did was that the town that that he and I grew up in is a pretty small town. So we knew from the very beginning that if we wanted to get our original music out there, that we had to go to where there was a little bit more of a music scene. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that area was Wilkes-Barre and Scranton. Okay. Where are you from? I I live in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half from Wilkes-Barre. 
And oh, okay. it's, the other direction is about an hour, an hour north of Harrisburg. Oh, uh, okay. Because my my mother's actually from Wilkes-Barre. Oh, okay. Right yeah. on. And yeah. uh, I'm from I'm from PA. I'm from outside of Philly. But you see, Wilkes-Barre, I was like, oh, because that's a, I mean, Wilkes-Barre's a small town too, though. Well, for us, it was not. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, there was just so much more of uh, there were. There, I mean, at that time, you know, now if you think back, we're talking about like the year 2000, like the early 2000s, mm-hmm. that was still when um, the DUI laws were not what they are today. Right, you know, right. that was one factor. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, Pete, there was a real music scene up there. I mean, there were a lot of bands in the Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area, and there were a lot of bands that were actually pretty decent, too. I mean, you know, were they all major label material no, but I mean, they were still the type of bands that you would be willing to go see and they would draw crowds and everything. Mm-hmm. So what we started doing was we started going up and opening up for another band um, in Wilkes-Barre. And they had already established a little bit of a following. And the, the second part of the equation of success here is that we got put in front of some people. We had songs. You know, and that's one thing that I, I mean, I've done some producing before myself and, and I always tell younger bands is that, you know, you can play really well, you can sing really well, you can have a great following, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, do you have songs? Do you have material? You know, Mm -hmm. that's, what's going to leave a lasting impression on people. And so we were out there gigging and we would do, um, about half and half, you know, like a lot of bands, we do half originals, half covers. And when we would get done playing, a lot of people would come up to us and say, you know, hey, man, I really, really dug that song. Who does that one? And we would end up saying that's one of ours, you know. Right, and right. the next thing you know, people just kept wanting to hear more and more of our own material and to the point of where we – our set became largely original material. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the next factor that happened was is um, we had a guy who was at this one club that we played at and he was really interested in the band and he was he said, I can't believe nobody's done with you guys yet, doing anything with you guys yet. So he put up some money for us to go do our first five song EP and that five song EP is ultimately what ended up getting us our record deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, you know, in the interim there, we of course got a manager, manager and a lawyer and everything. And it was really cool the way this happened. I mean, I don't know if this happens this way for every band, but for us, it was kind of, it was pretty fast once we got our manager because we had our five song EP, our manager contacted all these record companies. And he said, these guys are going to get signed. They have a gig this Friday. They have a gig next Friday. If you don't have the power to sign them, bring somebody that does. That was like his his whole thing. And he oh, was – yeah, I mean he just really just laid it out there. And and the first week that we played, we had like five or six record companies. And the second week that we played, we had you know like six or seven, something like that. So were there, there were a, within like two weeks' time, there were a lot of people that came out to see us. And then we ended up um, narrowing that down a little bit. We didn't have offers from every single one. But we ultimately ended up going with Hollywood Records. Mm-hmm. So um, the one thing I should say in there, too, just for everybody who's listening, is that when I say that the process was fast to getting the record deal, I don't necessarily mean that from the time the band got together to getting the record deal was fast. It's that once we did that recording and actually put our songs down you know, onto a CD and then had a manager, then things really started to take off. Right. It's right. like the the long road to overnight success kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. 
Now, the uh, man, I just you totally caught me off guard, and I just I lost my train of thought because I, I wanted to ask you about growing, about growing the band, and what I catch off guard with. <laughs> I don't know. I I interjected with something, or maybe I did it to myself. I don't know, but I totally lost my train. I thought I had. I wanted to ask you something about how, about when you guys were were growing the band. One thing that that I thought was interesting that you brought up is is leverage, and and people don't think about using leverage to grow their own band. So, like you said, you were opening up for for other bands because they already had a following and you were sort of leveraging their fans to get yourself to get new fans. And, and one mistake that I see that bands do and correct me if I'm wrong, that they'll go on tour and they won't be supporting anyone or anything. They'll go on tour by themselves and they've never been to the seven States that they're going to. And they're playing at hole in the wall bars across the country that it's not really doing anything for them because it's not gaining them a fan base. It's not really getting them, and exposure. So for them, it's sort of just like a road trip where they're playing music. That That's true. I mean, and, and I've seen it really happen both ways. Like there's, there's on one side, there's the angle of where if possible, you can, you know, if you're going to go on a tour that you go with somebody who's going to bring out some people and that way you're automatically being put in front of more people. But I've also seen bands, um, like one of my favorite bands right now is the Zach Brown band. I just mm-hmm. love that band. Um, I went to see them recently and, you know, those guys just pretty much started off in, you know, just in, in a bar and they just basically started playing these different places and they did it the real old fashioned way. Um, if you do decide to do it that way, the one thing you have to do is you've got to really make sure you're on your A game, even if there's just five people there, because the next time you come, those five people are going to tell their friends are going to say, man, you know what? This, there was only like five people there, but these guys still played this show. Like they were, they were working in an arena or something like right. that. So if you're going to go that route, you really got to not get down because there's nobody there. And you know, you're out there and you have to see the big picture of what you're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> now. So what year did you guys sign with Hollywood? 2002. Okay. So the landscape between now and then has changed dramatically. Oh my gosh! Yeah. In terms of you know, with the internet, with signing deals and and all sorts of stuff, and I'm sure you guys got an advance when you signed and all that stuff. Which the days of getting advances is pretty much gone as well. How do you how how would you suggest that that somebody handles it now? Because it's not like you know, years ago, it's like here's 250 grand and here's you know here's all of this support, which I, the labels aren't getting or giving too much anymore. So now I, I kind of feel like. I don't know if there's a need for a label anymore. I don't know if there's a need for a label either. And as far as how I would do it now, I mean, man, that's, um, I don't know if I would be an authority on something like that because, um, it is a different time. And, you know, we've been seeing all of the, this, the sales figures released and everything that just gets worse and worse and worse. And we live in, we live in that digital era. So I think at the end of the day, it, it just still comes down to, how good are your songs? And, you know, if you have to just getting out there and playing in front of people, and even if it means in the very beginning, you just go to a couple club owners and say, you know, Hey, we'll just, we'll, we'll pay for the door, you know, we'll play for the door, whatever you have to do. But I think probably now more than ever, you have to take that real, um, 
rags to riches approach where you're just starting off with nothing and just believing in what you're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, it's not really very often anymore where a band is able to, to get on a big tour like that. Like the first, first big tour that we had was three doors down. We, we toured with three doors down as our first big tour. And that really helped to, you know, help the band success more. And then when we went on tour with Godsmack, we went on tour with Godsmack for a really long time. Um, we were on tour with them for, you know, six months at least. And, and doing that tour was just huge for us because now you're, you know, obviously you're playing in front of all these people, but having those opportunities to do that anymore, I don't think are what they once were. Right. Right. So again, you know, back to your original question, I think that you probably just kind of have to get your songs together and, and, you know, maybe try to get some management. You know, that's for us what really, really helped us was getting a manager and seeing what he could do for us and going from there. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about the 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 heydays of when you were in the band. How big was it at at its peak? Well, at its peak, when, when I was there, I mean, there was kind of two phases. There was the there was the first phase when I was there, and that's when we were doing like a lot of shows, um, you know, opening up for for larger acts. And then we would do some on our own, but like the ones that we did on our own weren't quite as big as the ones that we would do at you know with Godsmack or at festivals and everything. Me personally, the biggest crowd I ever played for was thirty thousand people. That was in Montreal at a at a music festival that we did there, which was really cool. Nice. Um, and so, you know, we were able to start to kind of call our own shots a little bit more. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as when the band was able to really go out and have the, the, the big success with just doing some of the, the bigger shows by themselves, I think that that kind of came along a little bit after I was there, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but even then, if you kind of look back, the band was largely the most of their shows were doing things opening for Nickelback and and that type of stuff. Right. But so you guys the, were doing arena stuff then. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Like the whole Godsmack tour was arenas, and we would do all the arenas. We would do you know Red Rocks and you know all that all those types of big places, which was just you know for me uh, a dream come true. One of the coolest things that I got to experience was. You know, I've always been a music fan and going to concerts. So to have been on the fan side at a lot of these different venues and then to go as as a performer and being on the other side was just a real treat. You know what I mean? It's cool. cool. Yeah. Like doing like Jones Beach Theater, you know, New York and having been there for shows and then um, like the Electric Factory in Philly. You Mm -hmm. know, I've been there to see Incubus a bunch of times and stuff. And then to be actually coming out on that stage, it was it was really, really cool. It's it's a good feeling. And especially like for me, you know, like growing up in Philly and playing those places like the Electric Factory and the Troc and TLA. And you're like, man, I've been coming here for for years. The one place I haven't played yet, and I'm a little upset about, is the Tower. It's where I first, I saw my first concert. Okay, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but why not? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was Vanilla Ice. <laughs> nice, dude. You know what? I did a gig with. I did two. Was it two or three? At least two gigs with Vanilla Ice, like uh, probably three years ago, four years ago now. He had a um, like a heavier band, right? Well, it wasn't even a band. It was him, and it was a DJ and me. Uh, was he doing like the Vanilla Ice stuff, or was he doing? He, he was could... he was doing both. He was doing like um, 
a lot of his earlier hits. And then he was, he was kind of like a mixture of across, across his history. And, um, can I share with, quickly with the story with you how that happened? Hell yeah. I tell people like vanilla ice are like, dude, how in the world did that ever come up? <laughs> Rob uh, Van Winkle. Exactly. So, uh, I got a phone call one day from a sound guy and this, the sound guy was the one that was going to be doing the shows at the venues where vanilla ice was coming into play. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I guess something happened with their drummer because, like, those guys fly into everything they do. They just fly into the venue. When they're done, they fly out the next morning type of thing. Right. right. And um, something happened with their drummer. And so uh, Vanilla Ice and, and the DJ, who was his tour manager, contacted the sound guy and said, our drummer can't make it. You know, who do you – and this was on, like, a Thursday. And the, the gig was the next day. And he, they said, who do you know that can – um, learn this material fast and show up tomorrow night and do the gig. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm honored and flattered that this guy recommended me. So the tour manager calls me and everything. And so they set me up to play with them the next two nights. And I think people might think to go play with vanilla ice would be like a pretty easy gig to do, but like, really it wasn't. And the reason why is because, um, he sent me some tracks ahead of time, but the next night before vanilla ice gets there, um, I'm on the stage where I get my kit set up, the DJ's beside me and he's like, I'm going to start running through some of this stuff. I just want you to play along, you know, see how things gel here. So the very first tune that he does, um, it starts off and the next thing I know, I have to make a stop on, on like bar 17. Okay. So it wasn't like you could just groove. Right. And then, and then, and all of a sudden I'm starting to say to my, and this happens again, like later in the song, I'm starting to say to myself, you know, He's a hip hop guy. These breaks are built in for a reason so that he can get the crowd to do like a, hey, you know, whatever he's going to do. Sure, sure. So if I'm playing through these stops, he's going to turn around and whip a beer bottle in my head or something, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I said to the DJ, I was like, man, you know, can I get a copy of what you have right there? Because I said, I got to go back to the hotel room and just, you know, really shed some of this stuff so that I'm on top of my game tonight. So I did. I mean, that's that's the beauty of being able to kind of chart out some stuff even if it's just knowing how long sections are is just being able to do that so that was kind of my vanilla ice experience and um it was cool and it was fun and it was short and um good paying and it was like a wham bam thank you ma'am and that was that nice so yeah so the you know that's on my credits is vanilla ice i know that he he had so i'm good friends with are you familiar with the bloodhound gang yeah. So I'm good friends with uh, the DJ from the Bloodhound Gang, and I know that that Jimmy, the lead singer, was doing some stuff with Vanilla Ice at some point. This was probably a while ago. This is probably like 2001, 2002. But I know that there was like some, um, some like hardcore. Not, I don't want to say hardcore, but it was heavier than obviously the other stuff that he was doing. Interesting enough, I was interviewing Steve Williams. And we're talking same thing. And I'm like, yeah, Vanilla Ice was the first concert I ever went to. And, you know, I was like, what year was that? And we talk about it. And the reason why I started playing drums was because I went to this Vanilla Ice concert and this drummer did a solo. And it happened to be Steve Williams, who I was interviewing. And I didn't know that at the time. Wow. So, like, it sort of came full circle. And I was like, you're the guy that <laughs> that influenced or, you know, that that sparked that interest in me in me playing drums, which was kind of awesome. So vanilla ice gets a lot of love on this podcast for numerous reasons. And I was a huge, I was a huge vanilla ice fan too. So <laughs> yeah, at the time, like the, uh, the tour manager was telling me, he said about 
with Vanilla Ice being flown in and everything, um, he, he was saying, yeah, he's finishing up some filming for his TV show and everything. And like, truth be told, at the time, I had no idea that he had the TV show with his renovations and all that type of stuff. Yeah, so, I think that went south, though. Did it? Well, apparently, like... <laughs> the guy, like the people in his crew, were like stealing stuff from the homes. Really? Yeah, it was on the news. Oh, that's never good. <laughs> yeah. I think the last episode that I just kind of decided to check out, just for the heck of it, was I think he was working with some Amish people, you know, working on one of their, I don't know, farms or whatever, and they were trying to build up their their horse building bigger, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yo, let's kick it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, he's like, he gets there and he says, stop. Clever. <laughs> <laughs> Ice is back with the Amish edition. Um, yeah, right. So, <laughs> I'm also a, an aspiring rapper. Adam Deitch and I talked about that last week that I think we're going to start a rap power group led by me, I guess. I don't It's going to be ridiculous. Anyway, we're going off on a tangent and the listeners are like, what the hell is going on? So, but speaking of hip hop, that was a great segue that I, that I didn't plan, but, um, but I, so I don't know if this is the case or not, but I know that you cite a lot of hip hop going on when you were coming up. So were you a fan of hip hop or were, you, were on your site? I know that you mentioned it. Is that something that you were, you were a fan of, or it was just around at the time? No, I was a big fan of it. I mean, that I think a lot of that stuff from that era, you know, I was listening to stuff like N.W.A., um, Too Short, um, Ice-T, Kurt, uh, Curtis Blow, um, Eric B. and Rakim. Eric, Eric B. and Rakim was probably my favorite group ever. Yeah, you know, and, and even like the stuff that wasn't quite as popular. Um, oh, Like Daruda Damaja. <laughs> who was the, who was the, well, I, I like Boogie Down Productions. Yeah, um, who was who was the, the, the group that uh, I'm getting ahead of myself for? But but anyway, um, EPMD. I loved EPMD too. There was there was them too. Uh, but still yeah, it's escaping me who I want to mention. But yeah, I was really into that stuff because see, at the time, um, I was in high school. I was very big into basketball, mm-hmm. huge into basketball. So like I was I was practicing during the summer and stuff like that, like almost all day long as, as I was going play, and you know just kind of the the culture of basketball is often with, with that associated with that type of music. So, you know, I was playing and listening to that type of stuff and, and enjoying it. And I really think that that definitely contributed to my, to my groove, you know, like to help with my groove and stuff like that. Cause, um, that's just, that stuff is really funky and, and mm-hmm. really slick. So. Yeah, it's weird because I have a hard time explaining to people that, you know, they're like, Oh, you're a musician. You probably grew up listening to, you know, John Bonham and, and, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm like, man, actually I didn't, I grew up like (laughs) you did. Like I grew up listening to, to like all this old school hip hop tribe called quest and Eric B and rock and the DOC and NWA and public enemy. And like in sixth grade, I got, I wore a public enemy shirt that said fear of a black planet. And for (laughs) anyone who knows what I look like, I'm, you know, as I'm a white dude and, so the teacher actually said something to me about it. And I was like, what? I just, I like, I, I, so I was like, I like the record. It's a, it's a good record. And she was kind of, I think she was kind of like disturbed because this six year old or six, this white kid from in sixth grade has a shirt that says fear of a black planet. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't care about that. I'm like, I just, I like, I like the music. I don't care who's singing it or what it's, you know, it's like, I just, that's just what I grew up on. My brother was big into hip hop. So he got me into it. And I, I love it. I love it all. I still do, you know, and, and I think that 
so when I started playing drums, it was just sort of like you said, it, I think it helped in my groove. I helped, it helped my groove too. It just made sense to me. And so I was just trying to play like a hip hop record, not trying to play like John Bonham. Now I'm like, man, I want to play like John Bonham, but yeah. And so, so much of like my, my playing style comes from just having all those influences across the board. You know what I mean? There was that, that was really the beauty of growing up with, you know, a father who was a musician is that, you know, he had, you know, just tons of records. Cause of course, when, you know, when he was coming up, he was, he had LPs and, you know, he would have everything from, you know, like real heavy shred guitar stuff to the average white band to Miles Davis to, you know, all that type of stuff. So, you know, I would be up playing hoops, listening to hip hop. Um, I come home and be playing along with the Almond Brothers, you know, going out that night with my friends, listening to, you know, Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard and stuff. So, right, I mean, it, right. was, it was just that big melting pot of, of stuff. And I think that um, if, if anybody listens to my playing on on records, you know, you can kind of hear how there's some different things that that kind of creep in. Like just one little thing I'll mention is if there's a song in the first record, Saturate, called Next to Nothing. And on Next to Nothing, the um, Ben and I wrote that, you know, back early on. And that was back in my dad's basement. And that's something that I could very easily play just a straightforward groove to. Um, but I, at the time, I was listening to a lot of Steely Dan. So the groove that I ended up coming up with was like a, you know, there was some 16th notes being played on the hi-hat. So it was like a that was all with one hand. And it really kind of lended itself to a more funky, creative thing than just playing a straight up groove. And so that's where I think a lot of those influences found their way of seeping in. Sure. Sure. It sounds like you and I have a lot of the same the same musical taste. I mean, Steely Dan's arguably my favorite band and you know all the hip-hop stuff and just everything you mentioned i'm like yeah i I dug that too i'm into that i'm into that which is cool i like i can i can uh i can relate to a lot of the stuff that you're talking about maybe it's the pa thing or something i don't know it could be yeah it could be (laughs) or that we just have good taste right i think that's what it is let's just let's just call it that we just (laughs) so uh anybody listening uh we just we have uh really really good taste and uh that's about it anyway so so what's going on now with you i know that that you write for modern drummer which i read so i appreciate your articles i know that you play in a couple different bands you teach so tell us all about that because you have you got a lot of a lot of stuff going on that i want the listeners to know about sure well like going back some years when i when i wasn't with breaking benjamin anymore um it was really a no-brainer for me to kind of get back into to teaching because i taught before Breaking Benjamin became successful. So mm-hmm. just to interject, is that is teaching something that you're you're passionate about? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. OK, because <laughs> you know, a lot of people and I've, I've brought this up numerous times on the podcast, but I feel like a lot of guys teach just because it's a way to make money. And I'm of the firm belief that you should only teach unless you're passionate about it. The same thing with anything else. So do you agree with that? One hundred percent. I'm as. I don't think I could really be more passionate about teaching than I am. I mean, and and the funny thing is, is that, you know, in some professions, the longer that you do something, maybe your interest kind of wanes, but mine's the opposite. Like the longer that I do something, the more passion I become. And I just, I'm really just like a sponge, you know I mean? I, I love teaching because I love working with people and helping people. And at the same time, I love teaching because it allows me to still be a student. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I can still be a student and, and learn things, not only from, you know, things I might have to teach or, or break down or whatever, but also learning from other people, you know, that how people work and how people tick. And I think that teaching is so much more than just, you know, you and another person in a drum set. You have to be able to be a coach, a psychologist, all that type of stuff. Sure, you know, sure. need to really work with somebody. And um, you mentioned about doing it for for the money. I, I was working with a student, in fact, last night, and this is a kid who's he's 15, and and I'm when when a student works with me, I'm very just honest and sort of like tough love to sometimes. Like I mean, I'll pat the back when I need to, but if I have a student who know who I know has a real talent, last night he came in and. You know, I had been teaching him some world rhythms the last time that we got together. And he was doing some bossa novas and sambas and things like that. And he comes into his lesson last night. And, dude, this is a kid who his natural ability is like off the hook. Okay, (laughs) but when I give him stuff to do, he came in last night and, you know, it, it was almost like I was sitting in on his practice session. Right, you know? right, right, right. And, and I just and I, and I let him go for like 10 minutes to see if he could figure this stuff out. And I just kind of stopped him. And I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to be totally straight with you. I said, I'm not here to get paid for this. I said, I'm here because I want to help you. And I said, and I'm going to be honest in telling you that your your talent is really going to waste because, you know, you don't want to be as good as as I as I think that you can be. You know what I mean? And I told him, I said, if it's just for me to sit here for the money, I would rather work with somebody who is maybe not the same skill level who really needs my help because they're, they want to be here and they want to be passionate about what they're doing, you know? So I, you know, I told him this and I think hopefully he kind of got it because, you know, I've had situations before, before where people have talent, but they just don't have that. They either don't know how, or they don't want to learn how to cultivate that. And right, so right. I sort of feel that's my job sometimes is not force them to do something, but just get them to believe in themselves and, and want to move forward, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you do that in different ways. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. I'm very, very into teaching and, and all that good stuff. So, yeah. Coincidentally, it, I, I like teaching, but not in the traditional sense. So I don't like having the one-on-one students, but I do, I have coaching clients that I, that I do everything from like, you know, business to goal setting and achievement and, and, and music business, uh, coaching and consulting, which I love. I absolutely love, but for some reason, the sitting down, you know, every hour and, and going through different exercises and stuff like that, something that I'm not passionate about it. And I took a hard look at, at myself in the mirror. And I said, you know what, you're not going to do this anymore because you're, you're selling your students short and you're selling yourself short. I have one student that I've been teaching for years and he and I, he's like, I feel like he's like my little brother now. And so I, I love teaching him, but I decided not to take on any more students just for the, for the sheer fact of, Hey man, you know, I'm not a hundred percent passionate about this. And I don't think that it's right to to do it if I'm not, because I don't want to just be in there collecting a paycheck and, and babysitting, you know? Absolutely. And, and truth be told, there are, you know, like you kind of alluded to when you first asked me the question, there are a lot of teachers out there that, that are doing that, you know, where they're just kind of there to collect the paycheck and, and, um, we don't want to do things that way. (laughs) Right. Right. So I think you can find other things that you're, that you're passionate about and probably have a greater impact on people rather than, you know, cause a lot of people are like, well, if I'm not on the road or I don't have any gigs, I'll just teach. Well, I don't know. I think you might as well go get a 
you might as well go get a day gig because, you know, you can probably make more money and, and you could be just as unhappy doing that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the, you know, the, the teaching thing I got back into, and again, you know, I mean, I've become more passionate about that going along and, um, you know, just trying to get involved with, like I said, I, I did, um, a PASIC clinic in 2010, which was, um, really cool for me. Um, and, and probably by far my most nerve wracking experience that I've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, I mean, I tell people all the time that, you know, I have no problem with going on stage in front of 20,000 people, you know, with the band. But when you're up there all by yourself and you're like in front of a thousand other drummers who basically have seen every clinic known since mankind. almost <laughs> Right. That's what I'm thinking. And every person in the crowd's like, man, this guy sucks. I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you just, you know, you, you, you try to think of things to teach that, sure. that they might not know that you want to try to, to try to teach them something, you know? And, and that being said, you know, I really learned a valuable lesson uh, since that time is that, you know, I came to realize that basically as long, as long as you, and when you do clinics and when you teach the most, the most genuine thing you could do is to be yourself. You know, it's right, that right. old, it's that old adage that if you try to please everybody, that's when you, that's when you fail. You sure, know? sure. So that, that's, a, I mean, I think that my clinic went really well that day, but at the same time, that was sort of a turning point for me in terms of doing those types of presentations, because, you know, people, people want to hear you and they want to know what you have to offer, not what, you know, you don't have to try to impress them with, with different things. Just be genuine about what you're doing. So I, I totally, totally agree, man. I, awesome. I think that, uh, authenticity is something that is sadly overlooked a lot. And I think that if people really hone in on that, then things just, things are just easier when you're authentic all across the board, relationships, business, whatever you do, conversations, anything. If there's authenticity there, it just makes everything so much easier and simpler as I, that's just the way I think. Yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm with you hundred percent, man. So see, we like the same music and we have <laughs> right age with that too. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, and then, uh, you know, moving forward, I mean, I, I'm involved with a lot of just the different education teams, like, you know, the Vic Firth education team. And the one, one new one that I'm excited about is, uh, Sabian has a new education team that, uh, Joe Bergamini, I don't know if you know Joe, but he he put together, they hired Joe to put together this new network. And it's been pretty cool because different teachers take turns doing webinars and it's designed pretty much for teachers helping other teachers. That's awesome. I heard about, um, so I'm good buddies with Daniel Glass and Daniel was telling me about it. And I don't know Joe personally, and I think I, I would like to. I'd love to connect with him because I want to. I want to get to know him. But uh, but I heard about the 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 Sabian um, the new the the new organization they have for teachers, which is great. The whole you know, t I think that everybody needs help from time to time. So if you have, you know, if you're a teacher and you're maybe at, at a at a dead end or maybe thinking of new creative ways to deliver information, I think it's a great asset. It is. And I mean, like, truth be told, there's often times where, you know, if I'm looking to freshen up something that I'm doing, um, I will, you know, I, I like to seek the the advice from what other teachers are doing. Like, just to give you something really, really simple example is if you go online and if you try to type in something like, you know, easy songs for beginners, like for, for beginning students to play. OK, the the challenge in that is that it's all subject to 
all these different people's interpretations. So you might get one guy who might have a couple good choices where he might say, you know, Billie Jean or, um, you know, uh, Back in Black, you know, stuff like that. But then another guy's like, you know, hey, give him some Iron Maiden and some Queensryche. And, you know, stuff. and, and you're saying to yourself, well, dude, you know, the, this is for beginners, remember? So it, so the one thing I like to do is, is I actually had a post on that on the network we're just listing some of the songs that I like to use and then just asking the other teachers because I know that it's going to be a lot better value information coming from other teachers. What do you guys use? You right, know, right, right. Because that can just help to give me some new ideas. And that's been a really nice um, collective effort so far. So there's that going on. And now I'm doing Skype lessons as well. So if anybody's listening and wants to, you know, study with me, you now have the ability to do so. Um, I do teach in two locations. I teach at my home studio in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, and I also teach at a music school in um, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And um, that one, I'm down there three days a week. So like if somebody's in, say, the Philadelphia area or whatever, that would be the location that would be a little bit closer for them to come to. Um, but if you want to reach me via Skype, all you have to do is go to my website and click on the email contact and hit me up and we'll get you going. So for all the listeners out there that, that want to connect with you, whether it be for, for lessons or for praise for doing the podcast and for sharing all your insight and time, which uh, that's a hint to the listeners that they should do that. Uh, one, what's the website address and, and what other social media channels are you on that they can reach out to you? Sure. The website address is just my name. It's jeremyhummel.com. And my email address is my name. It's Jeremy Hummel at hotmail.com. And I am on Facebook and Twitter. So. Awesome. So every podcast has show notes, as the listeners know. So I will make sure that all the information, all of your contact information, all the links and everything that we talk about in the podcast are in those show notes at drummersresource.com forward slash session one. To five and Jeremy, I want to thank you for for spending all the time to chat with me, man. I really appreciate it, and thank you for for being a listener of the podcast. And thanks for everything that you do in the drumming community, man. I appreciate you, and it was great to have you. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me as well. Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, we can connect, man. If I'm in if I'm in Wilkesbury, I'll reach out to you and let you know. Awesome. I, I still have some family up there, so I'll definitely uh, I'll definitely look you up if we're if I'm going to be in town. So. But until then, man, keep doing what you're doing. And again, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Nick. Thank right. you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you. So there you have it, Mr. Jeremy Hummel. And you can find all the links and everything that we talked about in this podcast at drummersresource.com forward slash session one, two, five. Also, if you're looking to step up your game a little bit and need some help really breaking into the industry or getting endorsements or growing your fan base or touring or goal setting and achievement or anything like that, I can help you. And I have a few limited slots left in my coaching. And if you're interested, just shoot me an email at coaching at drummersresource.com. And from there, we'll set up a quick call to chat, maybe 15, 20 minutes for free to see if I'm right for you, you're right for me, if I can help you. And then, you know, to see if, if you're cool with the rates and everything. And then from there, we get started and start working on your goals. So if you're interested coaching at drummersresource.com. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. I'm on Instagram at drummersresource and on Twitter 
at Drummers Are Source and reach out. I really, really mean it when I say I love hearing from you guys. So please introduce yourself, say what's up, tell me what you like or dislike about the podcast. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. I'll be coming at you again on Thursday with another podcast. I got some exciting news coming about some other podcasts coming from Drummer's Resource. So I'll keep you in the loop. But until then, keep drumming. Thanks so much for listening. I love you. I appreciate everything you guys do. And thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.